Well, today uh, we're going to talk about getting saved. And we're going to talk about it uh, by looking at a meal Jesus had with Zacchaeus. Um, but I, I, have to, I have to say this up front, because as soon as we read the text, you're going to be like, what? Um, there actually isn't a meal in this text, but the meal's implied, okay? So I, so I kind of fudged on this one, um, but, uh, but there, there's an implied meal in the story we're going to read tonight. And I want you to know, too, that some of you maybe have already started to tune me out because you're already saved. And you're thinking, what, what in the world? I mean, how is this going to help me at all? And some of you might have already tuned me out because you have no intention of getting saved. And so I want to say to both of you, I think there's stuff that you can get from this sermon that I've been thinking specifically about both of you. So let's look at this meal that's not really a meal together uh, in Luke 19. It's printed in your bulletin if you don't have a Bible. And I'm going to read the first nine verses, first ten verses. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word. So, to get saved, like Zacchaeus, We have to climb a tree, we have to see past the crowd, and we have to take Jesus home with us. Now Zacchaeus, like Matthew, whose meal we looked at last week, was a tax collector. But Zacchaeus wasn't just any tax collector. The the text tells us he was the chief tax collector. In fact, this is the only place in all the Bible that there's a mention of a chief tax collector. So compared to Zacchaeus, Matthew would have been seen as straight bougie. I think that's the right way to use that term, right? Yes, I'm laughing. Yeah, I said it right. Great. Um, Matthew's wealth would have been significantly less than Zacchaeus. I mean, Zacchaeus was Mr. Manager. Well, manager, because we just say manager. But, but he would have been uh, the, the guy that all the other Matthews reported to. In a sense, you could think of uh, Zacchaeus as being the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. I mean, he was the big man. And Jericho was a great place to be king. Jericho was this little paradise. It had palm trees and rose gardens. Herod the Great built his winter palace there. There was also a theater and a hippodrome. So, I mean, it was like, it was the place to live. The weather in Jericho was like California perfect. It was by far the best place to live in all of Israel. In fact, 75 years prior to this, Mark Antony had given this city uh, to the the Egyptian queen Cleopatra as a token of of, of his affection. 
Many of the streets in Jericho were lined with sycamore trees, just like the palm trees that lined the streets in Beverly Hills. And in order for Zacchaeus to get saved, he had to climb one of those trees. Now, even if he hadn't been a wee little man, um, which I think in 2017, we should probably describe him differently than that, but metaphorically, he would have still had to climb a tree. We all do in order to get saved. Because you see, when Zacchaeus climbed up in that tree, he left his dignity down on the sidewalk. In fact, he had, he had left it down the road a ways. If you go back to verse four, it says he wanted to see Jesus so badly that he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree. Now in the ancient Near East, men did not run. Children ran, but men did not. I don't care if a 15 foot python was coming straight towards you. If you were a man, you would not run because to run would be shameful. That's why in the famous story that Jesus told of the, of the, uh, the, the prodigal son, it was so shocking when the father of the wayward son ran out to meet him on his return home. Men did not run in this culture. So the gospel writer, Luke, when he's recording the story about Zacchaeus, he's making it very clear by including the running and the climbing that Jesus, I mean, that Zacchaeus had to pay a price to see Jesus. The price of ridicule, the price of being seen like a child. You can't get saved without praying, paying that price, without climbing a tree, without becoming like a child again. Y'all know I, I love C.S. Lewis, and I in particular love his Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and in these stories, uh, they, they begin and they end with the four Pevensey children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And in the final book, at the very end of the final book, the seventh one, all of the kids enter into Aslan's country, which Aslan says is a truer Narnia. It, it's, it's really... Uh, C.S. Lewis's picture of the new heavens and the new earth. All the children enter into this paradise except for Susan. Susan is left behind. Why? Why would Susan be left behind? Well, there's this one point in the seventh book uh, where it says this of Susan. It says she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipsticks and invitations. She always was a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. So she wasn't there because of puberty, kind of. I mean, in the seventh book, all the kids have grown up. All the kids have gone through puberty. Susan, though, looks at her adult siblings and she says to them, fancy you still play those stories in your head that we played as children. See, through Susan, C.S. Lewis is showing us the mistake we often make. That when we grow up, we can't believe anymore. Now, I know that it's a little bit weird, uh, my affection for all things Disney. And I get it. I get I'm an adult man, and that, that creeps some of you out. And the fact that I would go to Disney World without any of my kids all by myself and be completely happy, I know is weird. But I think there's, there's some validity to it. Listen, Walt Disney knew what he was doing. He knew by aligning his brand with fairy tales, he and his company would always be relevant. I mean, the new Beauty and the Beast movie that just came out three weeks ago has already made $876 million. We are enthralled by fairy tales. They fill our hearts with wonder because they tell us that this physical world is not all there is. 
They tell us, they invite us to, to think about the fact that there are supernatural forces beyond our comprehension, forces of good and evil. And this is the same with superhero stories. It's the same uh, the reason that the Spider-Man franchise gets rebooted every 3.5 years. We, we want to hear and see these stories because something in our design wants to believe that there's a world where people can fly or where people live forever or where everyone is a prince or princess, where everyone gets a crown. But just like Wendy's parents and Peter Pan, at some point we're told, okay, it's time to get out of the nursery. It's time to put away that childhood wonder. It's time to grow up. But if we do that, we can't get saved. It's impossible to get saved. Think about this. To be saved means you believe that a being from another world broke into our world. That one who was extraordinary became ordinary. And not just any kind of ordinary. We're told by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53 too, that he had no majesty or beauty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. We believe that he was born in a borrowed stable, that he was placed as a baby in a dirty feeding trough. We believe that he grew up and lived most of his life in complete obscurity working as a carpenter. And then one day, he started a movement based on love and grace, a movement that looked at people and saw in them things that didn't seem apparent on the outside. And ultimately, a movement that would lead him to a cross, that would lead him to a sacrificial act so that he could defeat the evil powers of death and darkness. And because he wasn't just a man, he was actually God, we believe that three days he rose from the dead, he conquered death, declaring our forever happily ever after. Do you believe that? That's ridiculous, but it's true. The gospel is the truer fairy tale which all other fairy tales point to. Because the gospel is true, fairy tales have endured the test of time. Because the gospel is true, sacrificial love is the main hallmark for every movie or book or story that move us. It's why Harry Potter was the boy who lives. Because of his mother's sacrificial love when she sacrificed herself to save him from the evil Voldemort. It's, it's the way Anna's frozen heart was thawed because of her sacrificing herself for her sister, an act of true love. It's the deeper magic uh, in the land of Narnia that the white witch didn't know about when she killed Aslan in the place of the traitor Edmund. There's a scene in, uh, in the movie Hook, uh, which is one of my favorite movies. It was, a, it was an old movie, but, uh, but the movie Hook is about Peter Pan when he's all grown up and he no longer lives in Neverland. In fact, he's forgotten all about Neverland. Um, and, and I remember there's this one scene early in the movie when, when he goes to visit Wendy, who's now a very old woman, and she's trying to get him to realize who he is. He's forgotten that he is the Peter Pan. And she looks at him and she says, Peter, the stories are all true. To get saved means you believe in fairy tales again. Jesus actually took a child once and, and placed him on his lap and said, unless you become like one of these children, 
you can't enter into my kingdom. Unless you are as humble as a child, unless you recapture your childlike wonder, you'll miss it. You'll miss me. Martin Luther King Jr., whose assassination happened 49 years ago this week, when he received the Nobel Peace Prize, said in his acceptance speech this, I refuse to believe the idea that we are mere flotsam and jetsam in the river of life, unable to respond to the eternal oughtness that forever confronts us. Martin Luther King Jr. rejected the idea that the world is all there is, that we just evolved accidentally, that good and evil are just social constructs. Elsewhere he said, I believe there's an eternal world out there beyond this world by which we can know certain laws in this world are unjust. Injustice is not a matter of opinion. Good and evil are not just matters of opinion. They are not all relative. Martin Luther King Jr. essentially is saying, I believe in fairy tales. He believes that we're all part of a story where there is a supernatural force of good and there's a supernatural force of evil and that our desire for justice doesn't come from some kind of evolutionary process, but from outside our world. C.S. Lewis identified so much with Susan. That's that's why he included uh, her story in these chronicles of Narnia. He said at one point as an adolescent, he would have been so ashamed to be found reading fairy tales. But now as a 50-year-old man, he said, I read them in public and I even write them. For when I became a man, I put away childish things, especially the fear of childlessness. Going back to the movie Hook, uh, remember Toodles? Toodles, crazy, crazy old man. And he goes up uh, to, the poli- to a police officer and he says to the police officer, I've forgotten how to fly. And the police officer looks at him and says, one does. But what the gospel says is you don't have to. You don't have to forget. And if you've climbed a tree, you get that. So to get saved, you first have to be okay with looking ridiculous. You first have to be okay with being childlike. And secondly, and maybe the harder thing to do, is you have to see past the crowd. Did you hear what the crowd's response was to Jesus when when he said he was going to have a meal? uh, And not just a meal, he was going to stay with Zacchaeus. Their response was, with that sinner? Verse 7, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. The crowd that Zacchaeus had to see past is unfortunately very similar to the crowd that calls themselves Christians today. Very moralistic, self-righteous, uptight, religious people. I'm pretty sure one of Satan's most effective tactics at keeping people from seeing Jesus as Christians. And we talked about this a little bit last week. And we talked about how every religion operates with this idea that the unclean infects the clean. But when Jesus came, Jesus said, no, no, no. In me, the clean infects the unclean. And so what that means for for the movement that I've started, what that means for Christianity is that there can be no snobbery, that there can be no uh, distinguishing of people, there can be no line. In fact, as followers of Christ, he says, not only are you free to cross the line, but you are called to cross the line. But yet as Christians, we often fall back to the old religion. 
I can't say the word sinner without in my mind hearing Dana Carvey's Saturday Night Live character of the church lady. I mean, it's just so ingrained in there. And what Dana Carvey was doing with that character was showing us, painting a picture of how most of the world thinks of Christians. That's how they see us. And, and what's even more um, poignant that he did which is funny to say about a Saturday Night Live skit, but, but it is, is he took a word that is absolutely crucial to getting saved and he used it in an abusive way. How often have we heard the term, how often have we heard the word spoken sinner in an abusive tone? And yet, sinners are the only people Jesus loves. Sinners are the only people Jesus loves. You know, there are people all around us, hopefully maybe even some here, who are secretly interested in Jesus. Zacchaeus' parents had named him the righteous one. That's what his name literally means, the righteous one. When they held their little baby boy, they looked at him and they had so much hope for him. But yet he failed them. He didn't just fail them, he devastated them. Remember, he's the kingpin of the Jericho tax cartel. But they didn't really set him up for success either. I mean, how in the world could anyone live up into that name, the righteous one? Going back to the story of the prodigal son, I, I don't think the prodigal son left home because he hated the father or he didn't want to please the father. In fact, I think he did. I think he desperately wanted to please the father. I think the most prodigal among us, if you actually get down deep and get down to the core, there is a desire to be found acceptable. I think the prodigal son left home because he had a seemingly perfect older brother, an older brother who constantly looked at him and said, you'll never be able to please dad. You'll never find acceptance. And so instead of constantly feeling beat up and worthless in the presence of his hard-hearted and self-righteous brother, he said, I'll go to hell and I'll start heading that way now. But I believe he always longed for home. He always wished that there was a way he could be loved by the father. Zacchaeus had been excommunicated from the synagogue Zacchaeus had been treated like an outcast by God's people and by his family. He was seen as a traitor by all of the people who claimed to love God. And I imagine his conscience bothered him from time to time. I imagine every time someone called his name, he was reminded of who he was supposed to be. In fact, I bet that's why he started having people call him Zach. Um, he had nowhere to go. No one to ask his questions to. He was unable to find spiritual help because the crowd always got in his way. If that has been your experience, I'm not only sorry for you, I'm angry for you. I'm angry that I have family members who have kept you from seeing Jesus and I'm angry because at times that's been me. I'm angry because I can be self-righteous and judgmental. I'm angry because there are times where not only do I uh, look down on someone, but I can despise someone. I get angry because I think, and this is probably more the way I, I get in the way of people seeing Jesus, is, is I can use people without any concern for their salvation. 
who would, wanna, who would want to follow a, a leader whose followers use them instead of care about them? Is there anyone who you've kept from seeing Jesus? It's not too late to move out of the way. What would it look like for you to move out of the way? Or maybe better yet, what would it look like for you to grab their hand and take them to meet him? We might not always get it right here, but it is our hope and our prayer that this would always be a place where the crowd doesn't get in the way. Where we work really hard not to be a crowd that looks and uses the word sinner in an abusive way. Because sinners are the only people Jesus loves. No one thought Zacchaeus had much interest in spiritual things either. But look again at verse 3. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus. Last week, I challenged all of us to invite someone to Easter, and I said, don't dismiss the most unlikely person because Zacchaeus was the most unlikely of people. Yet the minute Jesus talked to him, what did he do? He jumped right on it. I mean, he, was, he, was so, I mean, he could hardly contain himself. There are people that we work with. There are friends that we have. There are neighbors. There are family members who are just waiting to be noticed who are waiting to be invited to have a conversation because they're already looking for Jesus. We just don't know it. And as we see with Zacchaeus, Jesus is already looking for them. So to get saved, we have to climb a tree. We have to see past the crowd. And lastly, we have to take Jesus home with us. Jesus looks up and sees Zacchaeus in the tree. And in verse 5, he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. Oh, spit. That would be my response, right? I would be like, I, are you going to give me time to go clean up my house before you come? But that's not Zacchaeus. We're told that Zacchaeus jumps down and with great excitement welcomes him into his home. It says he, he welcomes him gladly. That seems odd to me. Why would a wealthy man, the chief tax collector, a man who has reached the top in his career, gladly welcome a man into his life who would require him to give up all that he's been working for, everything that he's built his entire life around? I think it's because he, found, he finally found someone who accepted him. When Jesus said, I'm coming home with you, he meant I'm going to stay with you a little while. He meant, I'm going to have several meals with you. We're going to have late night conversations. I'm going to hang out. I'm going to see what your day looks like. And he said all of this before Zacchaeus changed a thing. Before Zacchaeus repented, before he had made up for any of the bad he had done. He hadn't cleaned up his life. He hadn't stopped cheating people. And this is where fairy tales sometimes get it wrong. Jesus is not like the Wizard of Oz who says, okay, go and bring me the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West and then I'll give you an audience. Jesus says, in spite of your flaws, in spite of your record, in spite of your collaboration with evil, I'm going to hang out with you. The way he accepts us leads us to accept him. The way Jesus accepts us leads us to accept him. See, Zacchaeus gets saved by giving up what he cannot keep, his money, in order to gain what he cannot lose, Jesus. And that acceptance changes him. And it will change us. 
Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, because you've accepted me, I want to change. I want to be different. My mentor, Steve Brown, often says the only people who get any better are the people who know if they don't get any better, Jesus will still love them. Zacchaeus knew he was accepted and loved by Jesus no matter what his response. And when he understood that, when he knew that, his response was to change. Do you know that if you do not get any better, Jesus will still love you? Do you believe that if you don't stop lying, if you don't stop cheating, if you don't stop looking at porn, if you stay bitter, if you stay selfish, if you don't invite your friends to meet Jesus, that Jesus will still love you? Change starts with believing that no matter your response, Jesus will still love you. And you say, how can that be? That doesn't, that doesn't even make sense. I know it's ridiculous, but it's true. 1 John 1, 9 through 2, 2 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. But my dear children, I write you this so that you will not sin. But... If you do sin, or when you do sin, know that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. The true righteous one sacrificed himself for Zacchaeus. And you know what? When the Father looks at Zacchaeus, do you know what he sees? The righteous one. If we take Jesus home, that's how God sees us. We are now seen in light of Jesus, our advocate, the righteous one. And when we get that, when we believe that, when we believe that when God looks at us, no matter what we've done, no matter how bad we're messing it up, all he can do is smile at us because of what Jesus has done for us. That changes us. The change in Zacchaeus' life too, is remarkable because it goes beyond anything the Bible requires of followers of Jesus. For example, the Bible says you have to give away 10% of your income to charity. Zacchaeus immediately gives away 50%. The Bible says when you've cheated someone, you have to pay them back the amount you've cheated them plus 20%. That's in Numbers 5. But what does Zacchaeus do? He says, I'm going to give you back a 400%. See, Zacchaeus doesn't just start doing what is required. He responds to grace, which causes him to go well beyond the requirements. It's a lame argument to say that grace makes people lazy or soft on sin. That's not, that, that's not even true. The person who's lazy or soft on sin doesn't know a thing about grace. They, like Zacchaeus before Jesus, have been kept away from grace. Maybe because of their own pride, they won't climb up in the tree. Maybe because they've been surrounded by a legalistic crowd. Maybe because they're so worried if they take Jesus home, they're going to be found out. But when you experience grace, there is a freedom that spurs you on to impossible things. Because grace takes you on an adventure that you would have never advised on your own. 
When Zacchaeus gave away 50% of his wealth, that led him to living a life unlike anything he would have ever planned for himself. This week I got to go share a meal with the residents of the Russell Home for Atypical Children. Um, And it's a home that was started in 1951 because Mrs. Russell decided she was going to take home um, a severely disabled child to see if it would work out. And then years and since then, her home has become a home for hundreds of children, many of whom were just left on her doorstep or abandoned at the hospital. And in this this meal I got to share uh, with these kids, most of whom are in their 40s and 50s, uh, which you can see in this picture. Um, I, I have to tell you, I wasn't sad when I was there at all. I wasn't sad for them. Because you know what? As I talked with them, as I, as I interacted with them, as I saw how they were with each other, I realized they have never n- not known that they were loved and accepted. They have always been a part of a family that loves them, the Russell family. Now, did Grandma Russell, or now her daughter and granddaughters, she's passed away, her her daughter and granddaughters now run this home. In fact, one of them is always there, seven days a week, 24 hours. One of them is always there. Now, did they do this? Do they do this? Did they start this because it was something they had to do? No. No. The Bible says that we are to take care of the least of these, but there are so many good and God-honoring ways to do this. But what they've done is give 50%, or more like 99.9%. Why? Why? Why Why do they do that? Well, I can tell you, after sharing a meal with the granddaughter, Beth, it wasn't out of duty or obligation. It wasn't to try to, 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 to be seen as this great human being. no. She does it because of grace. Because she talks about how she got saved by grace alone. Have you experienced that kind of grace? The kind of grace that causes you to do impossible things. Well, if you climb a tree, if you see past all the crowd, and if you take Jesus home, you will. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Zacchaeus. I thank you that in Zacchaeus uh, we can see so clearly how you love. That you love us in spite of, of ourselves, in spite of what we've done, what we bring to the table. You just love us. You love us in a tremendous way, in a, in a way uh, that sees so much more in us than we could ever imagine of ourselves. And Father, I pray if, if, if there are those in this room who have no idea that they're loved by you in such an incredible way, that you will make that known. That you will speak whatever needs to be spoken into their hearts so that they can experience the freedom that comes with grace. And Father, I pray for all of us that we, like Zacchaeus, would experience that grace in such a way that we say, not what do I have to do, but what can I do? What can I do? Make us a church full of people who say, what can I do? And we pray all of this in the one who is our righteousness, Jesus' name, amen.